Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is episode 4, Raiding and Trading with the Vikings. In the last show we delved into the wider Viking world. But today we return to Ireland to pick up the story of Irish history in the 9th century. In this show we will see the Vikings spill a lot of blood before getting a foothold in Ireland. In the second part of today's show, we will go on to look at this foothold, which is one of the greatest achievements of the Vikings in the 9th century. That is, the establishment of the settlement that would grow into modern Dublin. In episode 2, we saw the Vikings get the show on the road with a raid on the isolated monastery at Lindisfarne in England in 793. This raid was followed up by 30 years of attacks and vulnerable, isolated monasteries around the coast of Ireland. Now, whilst these attacks instilled a sense of fear, much of Ireland did avoid direct attack. However, in the 820s, this was all about to change. In the 820s and 830s, the Vikings were getting better organised. Instead of small groups of boats... Large fleets set sail from Scandinavia to attack Ireland. Annals record a fleet of 60 ships on the Boyne in 837. These increased numbers made the Vikings far more than just raiders. These fleets were floating armies able to strike with the surprise of early raids, but also able to wreak the destruction of a land army. With increased numbers, the Vikings attempted far more daring raids. Furries up rivers had previously been very dangerous when they operated in small groups, as they could be isolated and attacked. Now, increased numbers meant that these were possible. Soon the Vikings were seen in the Irish river valleys of the Barrow, Nore, Shore, Boyne and Liffey rivers. Attacks naturally followed. 
an attack on the inland fortress of the Rock of Dunamace in the late 830s illustrated the Vikings could now attack pretty much anywhere. All of Ireland was vulnerable and raiding increased in scale and size. The arrival of the fleets witnessed the start of about 20 to 30 years of very intense raiding, more intense than anything that had gone before. People of the day couldn't but have realised the situation was worsening. An older generation in the early 9th century, that's anyone above 40 at the time, had witnessed huge change in their lives. Society was becoming more unpredictable and indeed dangerous. For younger generations, they must have wondered what life was like without these raids. In this period, the stereotype of the Vikings and their real-life activities weren't too far apart. While they didn't wear horned helmets, there was widespread raiding and slaving. The accounts from this period really instill a sense of fear. Between 830 and 850, there are 14 separate accounts of slave raids, usually documenting a person of note being carried off. This makes you wonder how many other raids took place carrying away ordinary folks. Now while 14 raids might not seem that much, if you contextualise it in your life, it becomes a startling figure. You get a sense of the magnitude of the situation facing Gaelic Ireland. More than every other year there was a slave raid. People who disappeared in these raids were as good as dead, save a few powerful people who would have been ransomed back. The poorer you were, the more dangerous it was, because no one was going to pay a ransom, and that meant being sold into slavery, with your final destination being anywhere from Scandinavia to the Arab world. There is some evidence that people of the time were taking practical steps to seek protection. Souterrains are stone tunnels beneath Gaelic settlements, traditionally used probably for storage and perhaps defence. These mainly predate Viking attacks, but were used in that period in an effort to find safety. They must have been of limited use, though, once the Vikings were aware of their existence. The sinking feeling of sitting in a souterrain as a Viking attacker frantically searched for the entrance above doesn't bear thinking about. A worse fate, perhaps, was when the Vikings found the entrance and lit a fire in an effort to smoke the inhabitants out. A horrible dilemma faced the victim, whether to risk submitting to the Vikings or face certain death from smoke inhalation. We know that one Mugdarn chose death. His death was recorded in the 12th century text, the Cugga Gwael Regolif. Round towers, which are slender, tall, stone towers with wooden interiors, built at religious sites, were traditionally thought to have been constructed in this period for defence against these raids. However, this is incorrect. The earliest known date for construction of a round tower is after these raids had subsided. Indeed, the very idea that they were ever used as a sanctuary has been questioned by archaeologists and historians. This is down to the fact that they're constructed almost like a natural chimney and have a wooden core which would make them very easily burnt. On an overall level, while fear was pretty widespread and visible in written accounts from the time, 
What the actual level of the impact of a tax on Gaelic society as a whole is hard to tell. There are indicators, though, that Gaelic Ireland was feeling the pinch collectively. For example, there seems to have been an exodus of sorts of scholars from Gaelic Ireland. They usually left to go to the continent. Now, remembering that this journey to the continent was long and certainly not without danger, it's a testimony to the kinds of dangers they were fleeing in Gaelic Ireland. These scholars who left were undoubtedly a blow to Ireland. The more eminent among them became some of the foremost theologians of the day in Europe. For example, John Scotus Eugenia served at the court of the grandson of Charlemagne, Charles the Bald, in the 840s. John Scotus Eugenia went on to become one of the most famous medieval scholars. Economically, the attacks must have impacted on Gaelic society, although evidence of this, as you can imagine, is hard to prove. There's an indication that mills in Ulster were abandoned during the 9th century, and this may be down to the impact of Viking attacks. However, conclusive proof that an economy 1,200 years ago went into recession is pretty hard to come by. One aspect of Gaelic society we can see changing was the church. They had been the primary focus of Viking aggression from day one. With the Viking onslaught, what was known as the Golden Age of Irish Christianity ended. The Book of Kells, being finished sometime around the year 800, was the last great piece of artistic endeavour completed in this Golden Age, which had seen a flourishing of church art and thinking in Ireland. The structure of the church also changed under pressure from these attacks. The church opted more frequently for lay abbots at monasteries. Pretty understandably, when it came to picking an abbot, it made more sense to pick someone able to defend the monastery militarily than someone who might excel in a theological debate. This laicisation of the church only served to further push the church into the arms of secular Gaelic kingdoms. This association with particular kingdoms only made them more of a target in war. Overall, these snippets paint a picture of an ever-increasingly dangerous society where the church could no longer stand alone as an independent power structure. By the 840s, the future looked bleak in Ireland. However, the Vikings faced problems of their own. They were operating major fleets hundreds of miles from home and these obviously needed to be supplied. Next, we'll see how they solved this problem. As the Vikings created larger fleets, all sorts of logistical problems came with them. Just imagine it yourself, the basics of how much food a crew of a fleet of 60 ships would eat. Even sourcing the firewood to cook the food would have been difficult. To remedy this logistical problem and others, the Vikings created semi-permanent camps around Ireland called Longforts. Longfort means ship fort in Gaelic and was probably a fortified or naturally protected point from where the Vikings could raid but also source supplies in the locality. The long fort or fortified camp lasted usually from a few months to maybe a few years. However, others still, like Dublin, Limerick, Wexford and Waterford, developed into more substantial settlements. 835 saw the first recorded Viking camp at Inverdee in Wicklow. 
the annals of that year record that Kildara, or Kildare, was plundered by the foreigners of Inverdee, and half the church was burnt by them. That year, while spending the winter at Inverdee, the Vikings, in what must have seemed like the ultimate act of sacrilege, attacked the monastery at Clonmore on Christmas night. Symbolic attachment to this date aside, this raid illustrated a new, terrifying dimension to Viking raiding. Traditionally, winter had provided respite from Viking attacks, as the Scandinavians had to return home and heavy seas prevented winter raiding. However, with the construction of long forts, the Vikings now stayed in Ireland all year long. In the following years, other long forts were constructed around the Irish coast, at sites such as Loxwilly, Anagassan, Dublin and Wexford. Inland, the Vikings constructed a number on rivers. Sites such as Rosnery on the Boyne, Athlunkard on the Shannon and possibly Dunrally on the Barrow all witnessed Longfort construction. Most Longforts, as I've said, lasted a year or less after which they were abandoned or, as we will see, destroyed by the Gaelic Irish. At different times, different parts of the country suffered more. From around 839, inland areas were hit particularly hard as a group of Vikings operated up the wide-ranging river system of the Nore, Shore and Barrow rivers from a camp probably somewhere near modern-day Waterford. Longforts eventually dotted the entire coast of Ireland at one time or another in the 9th century. It must really have seemed the Viking roadshow of death, destruction and slavery were coming to a village near, well, everybody. But then, relatively suddenly, the wheels on the Viking machine in Ireland started to come off. No one in Gaelic Ireland could have seen it, but Longforts, while initially seeming devastating, as they facilitated increased raids, became the Vikings' weak spot. Now that the Vikings had established bases in Ireland, Gaelic kings had somewhere they could strike back, whereas previously the Vikings had just disappeared in their ships. By the 840s, the Gaelic chieftains started to take advantage of their ability to face the Vikings on land. Next we'll see Gaelic Ireland take vengeance for the savage mauling it took in the 830s and 840s. As we saw earlier, the impact of unpredictable raiding must have made people's lives far more difficult. So when news of a major Viking defeat in 845 emerged, it must have been greeted with widespread elation. That year, the Southern O'Neills, under their king, Welshocknell, defeated the Vikings based on Loch Ree and captured their leader, Turgesius. Turgesius had been the dominant Viking leader in Ireland for over a decade, establishing longforts across the island. He was possibly even the founder of Dublin. He had terrorised much of the island, including Welshocknell's own kingdom of Meath. After capturing him, Welshocknell was not in a forgiving mood. Indeed, as we'll see, he was not a particularly forgiving man, and Turgesius was drowned. News of this relatively significant victory must have been some relief, although there was no concept of Irish or national unity at the time. This news must have been widely celebrated. Moel Shocknell was by no means a nice guy, but he was more predictable than the Viking Turgesius. 
This defeat of the Vikings was followed up by other significant victories for the Gaelic Irish. The Ogonacht Kingdom in Munster put an end to the Vikings' raids up the Nor, Shore and Barrow rivers with a decisive victory in 846. The tide really seemed to be turning in favour of the Gaelic kings in 848 as four separate victories were recorded. Indeed, by 849 things must have looked very bad for the Vikings when Weishachnel attacked and decimated the Viking Longfort at Dublin. However, just as Gaelic Ireland seemed to be gaining the upper hand, a new Viking leader turned up with a massive fleet of ships. The annals of Ulster record, seven score ships of adherents of the King of the Foreigners came to exact obedience from the foreigners who were in Ireland before them, and afterwards they caused confusion in the whole country. Any Gaelic person who witnessed this fleet arriving didn't need to be a genius to realise this spelled trouble. The period of Gaelic dominance was going to be challenged. In 851, in a sign of things to come, the Vikings allied themselves to a Gaelic king called Kinead. Although Kinead had formally submitted to Mwaishochnil, he rose up with the aid of the Vikings and attacked Meath. This attack seems to have been devastating, shocking and brutal. In the raid into Meath, this new alliance ravaged settlements. They even burned a church with 70 people in it. This was symbolic of the ever-increasing violence in Gaelic society. From Wales Shocknell, he couldn't really let an attack like this go, and the following year he captured the rebel king, Kinaid. In what seems to have been an execution with pagan overtones, Steeped in ancient tradition, Kinaid was also dispatched by drowning, like Tergesius had nine years earlier. The period of the early 850s also witnessed major internal Viking conflict. This conflict would only be settled in 853, when two new Viking leaders formed a dual kingship. These men, known to history as Olaf and Ivar, were among the most prominent Vikings in Europe in the 9th century. This dual kingship united the Dublin Vikings, creating a very powerful force. We don't really know anything about the personal lives of Ivar and Olaf. In fact, nearly everything we do know involves killing somebody else. But these two guys must have been pretty charismatic individuals. They were the only ones who could effectively rule Dublin in the 9th century. Before and after them, the Vikings consistently attacked each other. But these two must have possessed a mix of ruthlessness, intelligence and charisma that it took to unify Viking Dublin. Indeed, their power would only be checked when they met two equally powerful men from Gaelic society. One we've met already, Mwael Shocknell, and the other was the king of the Northern O'Neill family, A. Finlia. These two Gaelic leaders were bitter enemies as they struggled to control Ireland's most powerful family, the O'Neills. While Ivar and Olaf were no less violent than their predecessors, under their rule the Vikings in Ireland changed from an external threat to an integral part of Gaelic society, acting as traders and mercenaries as they pursued a policy of forming alliances with Gaelic kingdoms. This came at the expense of raiding. Next we'll see how Ivar and Olaf brought the Vikings centre stage in internal Gaelic politics. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. When Ivar and Olaf arrived in Dublin, while the island was a patchwork of independent lands, the most powerful region lay to the north in the O'Neill kingdoms. The O'Neill lands were divided into the northern O'Neills and the southern O'Neills. While the lands were separate, a high king ruled over both branches, and this position of high king rotated between the northern and southern O'Neills. In the 850s, Moel Shocknell was the high king of the O'Neills, but as we'll see, his northern cousins weren't willing to accept his rule. Quickly after they arrived, Ivar and Olaf got straight into the mix and sought out an alliance. This deadly duo identified an ambitious king of Osri, Karul, as a potential ally, and in 859 they formed an alliance. Together they launched an attack north into Moelshochnel's kingdom of Meath. This alliance was breaking an old mould. Osri was a small kingdom which could normally never take on the might of the O'Neills. But now, with the aid of Viking violence on tap in Dublin, traditionally weak kings could aim high. In 859, the alliance ravaged the lands of Moelshochnel's kingdom. This was the second time in ten years the people in Meath had suffered such attacks, and pressure must have been mounting on Moelshochnel. He, as king, was failing to protect the people in his kingdom. These raids didn't just kill soldiers, you see. They attacked settlements, religious sites and would have had a huge impact on daily life. People's lives and indeed livelihoods could easily be destroyed. 
and in Gaelic society, it was Muir Shocknell's role as king to oversee the protection and defence of his kingdom. He must have been sensing some pressure because he acted with unusual diplomacy and split the alliance by granting autonomy of sorts to Carul. The Vikings Olaf and Ivar seemed to be relatively undeterred by the loss of their former ally and sought out a new alliance with Muir Shocknell's arch-nemesis and king of the northern O'Neills, Aethan Lea. To cement this alliance, the Viking Olaf married A's daughter. This is one of the few times I came across women in the history of the 9th century in Ireland. And it really dismisses any notions that women had equality in Gaelic Ireland. A's daughter here was used as a political pawn purely to cement an alliance. For her, this must have been awful. She presumably grew up hearing stories of the Vikings and lived in fear of them and then arrived home one day to find that her father had given her to one, just to cement an alliance. We know almost nothing about her, except that she was treated as a form of property by her family. This new alliance must have been frightening news for the people of Melchachnel's kingdom in Meath. Now they had enemies to the north and to the south, and having suffered invasion twice in ten years in 850 and 859, the prospect of a third one would have spelled disaster. But before this new alliance inflicted serious damage, Muir Shocknell emerged victorious over them in a major battle in 861. He was at the zenith of his power at this stage. He had defeated the Vikings on two occasions and subdued his northern rebellious cousins. However, it wasn't to last long. He died the following year. His death must have been agonising in more ways than one, because he knew, according to Gaelic custom, the kingship over the O'Neills would rotate back to their northern cousins on his death, and his old rival, A, would become king. Despite the former alliance with A, Viking fortunes didn't improve under his domination of the O'Neills. After ten years of warfare, the Dublin Vikings, although having expanded their territory around the long fort of Dublin, had failed in any great aims they might have had to carve out a kingdom. The last noted act by the Vikings in the 860s was a raid on the megalithic tombs in the Boyne Valley in 863. This incident seems to have caused widespread consternation. The Annals of Ulster described the pillage of the Boyne Valley as something that had never been done before. It's quite interesting that even three centuries after the conversion to Christianity, people in Ireland still paid homage to overtly pagan sites. The early 860s witnessed the end of the most serious Viking threat to Gaelic Ireland in the 9th century. Aside from small stretches of land at various points around the coast, they had failed to carve out any substantial land holdings. After 863, we hear very little of Olaf and Ivar. By 866 they had left Ireland and started campaigning in Britain with a much greater degree of success. They campaigned in Scotland and captured Dunbarton after a four month siege in 870. Indeed Ivar was probably one of the leaders of the Great Dane Army which conquered much of northern England in the late 860s. However in their absence their power in Ireland shrank. In the 9th century, and indeed the medieval period in general, a ruler's power was very much based on their presence in an area. 
People who would traditionally be loyal are more likely coerced into submission, feared a king less when he was out of reach. So when Ivar and Orlac went on campaign in England, Manny probably started to wonder would they ever return, or perhaps with a bit of luck they might meet a sticky end in the ongoing wars. In their absence, Gaelic chieftains campaigned successfully against the Vikings' settlements in Ireland. In the north, the O'Neills, now ruled by A, destroyed all their long forts in Ulster. While in 867, a Viking fortress at Clondalkin, only a few miles from Dublin, was burnt. Things must have seemed ominous for the Vikings. The memory of the sack of 849 can only have raised tensions and fear now that the Gaelic armies were at the gates again. By the time Olaf and Ivar returned in 871, having expanded their influence in Britain, their position in Ireland was declining. Olaf disappears from Irish history in 872, probably returning to Scandinavia, while Ivar died in the year 873. The death of Ivar marked a long, slow decline of the Viking fortunes in the 9th century in Ireland. However, his mark on Irish history would last way beyond his death. Ivar and Olaf had changed the role of the Vikings in Irish history. No longer were the Vikings an external force, but they were slowly becoming a part of Gaelic Ireland. They knew now how Gaelic society worked. They had spent time with Gaelic leaders on campaign and now knew how to intervene in Gaelic society, understanding the differing alliances and feuds. While their end goal is not clear, it is obvious that Ivar and Olaf had designs on power. They had clearly adopted a strategy of shifting away from raiding and entered a series of alliances, and eventually, after little success in Ireland, they carved out lands in Britain. In terms of long-lasting achievements, nothing compares to their role, though, in solidifying the settlement of Dublin, which would, in time, replace any other single settlement as the most influential place in Ireland. Next we look at what this muddy settlement might have been like and how it gained such an important position. Buried deep beneath the modern city of Dublin, the 9th century settlement avoided detection for many years. However, due to a recent upsurge in archaeological excavation in Ireland, we now have a picture of what this settlement may have looked like. Firstly, to understand the early settlement, we have to try and envisage the landscape. Dublin today is a built-up environment spreading for miles in all directions. However, in the 9th century, there was no buildings at all, just pasture and forests. There was the odd ring fort and church, but no buildings would really have obstructed the view from where the centre of the city is today to the Dublin mountains, 20 miles away. Then, like now, the area was divided by the River Liffey. Near the mouth of the River Liffey, the Vikings from the early 9th century identified an ideal site for a base, where a smaller river, the Poddle, met the Liffey. This tributary, the Poddle, now flowing in tunnels beneath the city, in the 9th century formed a large pool just where the two rivers converged. And it was here, at this natural harbour, the Vikings constructed a long fort, naming it after the dark pool, or in Gaelic, Undovling or as we know it, Dublin. For those of you who know Dublin, this pool was roughly situated where the gardens of Dublin Castle stand today. 
If you don't know Dublin, our setting is pretty easy to visualise. A large river flowing east-west and a small tributary flowing into it, forming a large pool just before the point where the two rivers meet. Archaeological excavations have revealed some of what this early site was like. To get a glimpse, think more rough and ready frontier settlement than urban environment. For us today, it probably would have looked like a village or a small town. A few houses have been found, and generally speaking, they were similar to the houses found in Gaelic society I spoke about in episode 1. Now, while archaeologists have divided the houses into lots of categories, it's enough for us to say that they were one-roomed structures. They would have been cramped without any of the modern notions of personal privacy, although to us they would have been colder and closer to a shed for animals than a modern house. In the 9th century, the warriors who inhabited these, who were used to life on the move, probably thought this was the better end of what was on offer. The early settlement was geared for war and raiding, so the population was heavily male-dominated. Of five graves found close to the site in recent years, all were young men. Many of the skeletons bore the vicious wounds of battle. In one grave, the Viking had had his arm hacked off, which had been placed across his chest. Large numbers of graves found upstream at Island Bridge and Kilmainham also reflect a similar gender imbalance. The age profile seems to have been equally lopsided. All five men who were found close to the site were aged between 17 and 25. This doesn't create the most enticing picture of early Dublin, with hundreds of young men armed and with a culture where might was right and violence was not only acceptable but encouraged. Although it was male-dominated, it seems that from almost day one, Scandinavian women, in small numbers, were living in Dublin, showing that from an early stage the Vikings were intent on staying and establishing a community. Graves found at Island Bridge and Kilmainham contained the bodies of six Scandinavian women and grave goods associated with the lives of women. It seems that almost immediately the Vikings were trading as well as being engaged in war. Indeed, in the early years, the two were probably complementary, with items taken in war or raiding being used for trading. Also, sourcing food and provisions for the site at Dublin probably involved some amount of trading with the local Gaelic Irish. This trade is evident from the early graves in the 9th century. Weighing scales and other items associated with trade have been found in numerous graves. Life in early Dublin, like much of medieval Europe, must have heavily reflected the seasons and changes in weather. In summer, Dublin presumably buzzed with activity. A sense of excitement and anticipation must have abounded through the Longfort before raiding parties or armies left to go on campaign. When Viking traders came from Scandinavia, people would have eagerly anticipated news from home or travels of distant lands. At times... This must have given away to fear and tension when war threatened the settlement itself, either from Gaelic enemies or internal conflict. In winter, the settlement must have been slightly more boring and mundane, as warfare and general movement must have been very limited. In the early years, we can assume many of the warriors would have returned to Scandinavia each winter, but still a significant number must have stayed behind to defend the settlement. Much of life must have ground to a halt 
from October to March. Without modern roads and the dangers of winter sea travel, the site must have been relatively isolated from the Scandinavian world and indeed wider Gaelic society. Although we have no accounts from the time, petty infighting and internal tension must have been high in winter. Large numbers of young male warriors cooped up in a long fort with not a lot to do must have led to tension, if from nothing else, just boredom. If you think about it, life must have been pretty monotonous, with communication with Gaelic neighbours being limited through language. Time was presumably spent repairing houses, paths and looking after animals. The rural aspect of Viking Dublin is also often forgotten. Even in the 9th century, Dublin was not just the Longfort, but the Vikings exerted control over surrounding lands and seemed to have come to some accommodation with their Gaelic neighbours. Over 10 miles south of Dublin, a rural Scandinavian farmstead has been excavated by archaeologists. Here at Cherrywood, a Norse farmhouse was discovered with evidence of family life. In this isolated place, vulnerable to attack, it's clear that this Norse family must have been on good terms with their Gaelic neighbours. Trade and contact would lead to a flow of ideas, art and technology between Gaelic society and the Scandinavians. And as we'll see in the next show, this led to a distinctive Hiberno-Norse culture. In the last three decades of the 9th century, the Longfort declined in fortunes. Internal life must have become more and more difficult as conflict broke out when no clear heir to Ivar emerged. The decline of the Vikings can be seen when they stopped collecting tribute off the Picts in Scotland after Ivar died. Collecting tribute is just a nice way of describing a medieval protection racket. Overall, the influence of the Dublin Vikings waned and they returned to raiding, which probably reflected a lack of a strategy rather than any clear decision to abandon Ivar and Olaf's alliances. From the accounts of the final three decades, life seems to have been increasingly more difficult. Tension and suspicion seem to have been constant. The 890s are littered with assassinations and intrigue. I find it hard to understand how they lived in such a violent society. The Vikings in Dublin were almost constantly at war with themselves, or the Gaelic Irish, or at times both. Tension and stress from this must have been really grating on their lives. The fear of losing life or limb was a constant danger. And how people didn't just opt out is beyond me. This violent culture, though, wasn't just limited to the Norse settlements at Dublin. It has shown up in excavations of Viking Iceland and Greenland, while Viking sagas are littered with violent imagery. This has been used, unsurprisingly, to create a singular, violent view of Viking society. But there was more to it than that. This violent picture could be equally applied to our society, but I don't think it would be fair to dismiss the entire 20th century as violent because of the widespread war and unparalleled violence. Equally, to understand the Norse settlements like early Dublin, we need to look beyond the violence as well as acknowledge it. And while we can say they were very violent, it's important to note that within this violent world, people on a day-to-day level got on with life, cared for each other, helped the sick and had fun. The nicer side of Viking society could not stop the decline though. By 902, the lack of unity, continuity 
and the abandonment of the strategy of making alliances with the Gaelic Irish came home to roost. In 902, an alliance of the Leinster kings attacked the Dublin Longfort and drove the Vikings out. Once, it was believed that the settlement itself was destroyed, but this has been recently challenged by archaeological evidence. It seems that the elite were driven out in the attack of 902, but as early as the late 9th century, the distinction between Gaelic Irish and Scandinavian was already blurred through intermarriage, and presumably the Gaelic kings could see the advantages of having this trading emporium with international trading connections. This expulsion of the Vikings in 902 marked a break in Scandinavian interaction with Gaelic Ireland. The overall impact of the Vikings in the 9th century was immense, both at the time and in the way it shaped Irish history. The Vikings in the first half of the 9th century introduced a chaotic, unpredictable aspect to warfare in Ireland. This gave way to a more strategic intervention that saw the growth of trade and interaction with Gaelic society. The inability of the Vikings to find a successor to Ivar and Olaf was fatal, however. But by the expulsion of 902, it was clear that the Dublin Vikings viewed Dublin as their home. They had their foothold in Ireland and they were not willing to give it up easily. When they were expelled, they only crossed the Irish Sea to Britain and waited for a chance to return. In 917, this chance presented itself. Tune in next time as the Vikings returned to Ireland in major upheaval. As a new power, the Dalkosh emerged in Munster to challenge for dominance in Ireland. The next show will tell the tale of the rise of the Dalkosh and their most famous son, Brian Baru. Until then, Sloan. Don't forget to check out irishhistorypodcast.ie or leave a voice message at Irish History on Skype. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 